On your insert, uh, you will find the passage that we'll be reading together this morning, or you can find it in your Bibles. Uh, in, in a moment, Alan will be preaching on this passage. It comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 25 through chapter 3, verse 15, and then verses 21 through 24. So let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word as we hear him speak. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has now become like one of us, <coughs> excuse me, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. To the tree of life. Almighty God, our strong deliverer, our strength and our shield, we do thank you so much that you have provided for us these, your good gifts by your fatherly hand. And we ask that you would take these gifts now, Lord. Freely have we received and freely we give. Uh, And we ask that you would use them, that the gospel would go out at Grace Community, in Cordova, and throughout the world, that your kingdom would be advanced. Thy kingdom come. 
Lord, and even now, even right here, we ask that Your kingdom would come in our lives and that You would feed us with the bread of heaven, that You would shower us with the healing streams of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I once heard a guy talking about how he worked in the tree service business. When people have trees that are causing problems, getting too big, and uh, they're getting in the way of them doing their daily business, just in the way, bigger and bigger, you call this guy, and he comes, and he gets rid of it for you. And what a lot of people do, because it costs less money, is get him to just cut the tree down, uh, leaving the stump. And, you know, it's just it's easier, takes less time, uh, we can just get this over with and move on with our life. The problem is, it's just going to keep growing back and growing back. And he'd tell people this, and sure enough, by next spring, that stump was sprouting into an oak bush. See, if you're anything like me, you've got a lot of problems sprouting up in your life. Usually just little inconveniences, but they can get bigger and bigger until if they're left unchecked, they can keep us from going about our daily lives in strength. And whether it's stress with work or conflict with family and friends or anger, depression, addiction, sexual sin, or body image, whatever it is, again, if you're anything like me, you tend to just kind of want to get it out of the way, cut it down, give me some kind of quick fix, something I can do so that I can move on with my life. But we find that these struggles just keep growing back and growing back, don't we? And the reason God tells us in this passage is that a belief that God is against you has sunk its roots deep within your heart. And if we really want to understand what's wrong with this world and, and what's wrong with your life and how we can change and how it can all be made right, we've got to go deeper to this misbelief about God, to our problem with our Maker. If we're ever going to see new strength and perseverance in the midst of our brokenness. So we're going to see three things in this passage this morning. Uh, it's a very rich passage, can't touch on everything, but we're going to see the belief that brings mutiny, the belief, and I'm going to explain that, the belief that brings idolatry, and the belief that is defeated by the gracious word. So first, the belief that brings mutiny. In the garden, Adam and Eve lived under the smile and love of God. And they knew it until the crafty, uh, deceitful Satan came onto the scene. And he tempts them to doubt this truth. He lies, essentially saying, God does not love you. He is not for you. God is against you. In verse 5, he says, 
the real reason God doesn't want you eating the fruit is because He's holding back on you. He knows that if you eat of it, all these wonderful things will happen to you. Your eyes will be opened. God's not looking out for your best interests. He is not for you. And when we believe that lie, everything changed. Because if God is not looking out for me and taking care of me, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to be in control so I can look out for me. I've got to be king of my life so that I can ensure my life goes okay. And so we feel this need to commit mutiny against God, to overthrow His leadership so I can be captain of my fate. In essence, so that I can be my own God. You will be like God, Satan said. And that's what you and I are trying to do every day. When we were little, all my cousins and I uh, were taught uh, from an early age that we are to respect our grandparents and that there are certain things you just don't do when you're at the grandparents' house. Uh, My grandfather, we called him Pops, and uh, in his den he had a chair that was Pops' chair right in front of the TV. And I don't think anybody ever even told us to, but we just knew when you walk through the den, you don't just walk through no, you, you crawl under his line of vision so that you don't obstruct his view of the TV. And when Pops wasn't in the den, if we were all hanging out in there, we might sit on the couch, we might sit on the floor, but we weren't about to sit in Pops' chair. It was like his throne, right, That where only Pops can be. We just knew you don't sit there, you don't do that. See, ever since the fall, you and I have been trying to usurp God's throne. We're trying to sit in His chair where only He should be. We're trying to substitute ourselves for God, putting ourselves in His place. In several ways, we we try to be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing as God knows. It's not enough to know as a creature knows depending on God to tell us in His Word what's good and evil. No, I want to be able to know on my own what's good and evil without having to rely on God or anyone else. When you see no need to study God's Word, or when you are considering rejecting Christianity because it doesn't fit with what you think and the way you reason, or when we don't think we need Christian community, other Christians speaking truth into our lives, because I know how to do this Christian life thing on my own. I don't need to rely on anyone else. We're putting ourselves on God's throne. You also see it when we subtract stuff that we don't like from God's Word, because we we try to be our own lawgiver. These are the laws that we will accept. In verse 1, did God really say you can't eat of the tree? God didn't really say that, did He? Did God really say that I can't enjoy the form of a beautiful woman? Does God really care if I cut corners at work or on my income taxes or my time card or 
just tell a little white lie? Like, where are you subtracting scriptural commands from your life as if they don't matter? Whether it be with sex or alcohol or gossip or showing mercy to the poor or whatever, we are all trying in some way or another to be our own lawgiver and our own God. Another way to do this would be to add to God's Word. This is kind of the more religious, respectable way to try to be our own God. Uh, Eve says in verse 3, No, God said we cannot eat of the tree. And that's true. God said that. He said that if we eat of it, we'll die. That's true. But then she adds, He says we can't touch it. But God never said that. She just slips that in there. Because we have this insatiable desire to take our own little man-made rules and slip them up into God's will and then judge others for not living by them. The old saying goes, don't dance, smoke, drink, or chew, or go with those who do. And, and we make up all the, a lot of laws like this. Thou shalt vote for this candidate. Thou shalt raise your kids this way. Thou shalt educate your children that way. Thou shalt not watch these kind of TV shows. Thou shalt not listen to this kind of music. And on and on it goes. We all have a few laws of our own making. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what are the standards by which I am judging others? Because we're all trying to be our own lawgiver and judge. We would never say it out loud, but in our heart and in our life, we are trying to be God. Where, where does all of our conflict with other people come from? I can say 99% of the time in my life is because I'm being self-centered, which is I'm putting myself in the place where God should be, in the center of of my life. What about we're all stressed out? We're all anxious. Why? Because I'm trying to ensure that my life goes a certain way, that I'm going to get these grades or that money or that baby or that job or that client, and we're anxious because we've got to make sure that everything goes according to plan, according to our plan. I've got to work all things together for my good. I'm trying to take God's role. Anger. How do you express your anger? Do you yell? Speak hurtful words? Or are you more of the silent treatment kind of person? These are all ways that we are, that, that I am punishing somebody. Because I think that I am the judge, jury, and executioner. I, I'm trying to take God's role again. Because when God and his, and his love and His favor towards me become small, I will become big. But that's not all. Because see, when God becomes small, these other things in my life will become big. And that leads to our second point. In this passage, we see not only the belief that brings mutiny, but secondly, the belief that brings idolatry. 
there's something, I don't know if you notice in the reading, but there's something very odd in this passage. What characterized people before the fall? Right, God sums it all up at the end of chapter 2. This is what it was like before everything got screwed up. We were naked. Right? If you had never heard that, and then I wrote a story about what I imagined paradise to be like, and we were all running around naked, you'd probably be a little worried about me. Just a little bit. I would hope. But it's practically the point of the story. Before the fall, we were naked. And we weren't ashamed. After the fall, we got really self-conscious about being naked. Because now, we have lost our confidence that God is for us. That we have His favor. We, we, now we believe that God is against us. See, when a wife knew that God loves her, and that the judge of all the earth approves of her as his treasured possession of great value to him, she was completely secure and she could stand before her husband naked and not feel weird or insecure or uncomfortable. But as soon as as she lost her sense of God's love and acceptance of her, all of a sudden she's obsessed with what her husband thinks about her. She's, she's just consumed with self-doubt and she's self-conscious about it and she wants to put on clothes now because she's looking to a mere man to be the judge who tells her whether or not she is accepted and approved and, and who gives her that sense of being loved and valued that she was created for. Or she's looking to body image to be the judge, to be the God who approves of her and who tells her she's okay, and somebody. It has become an idol that she worships. If mutiny is substituting ourselves for God, then idolatry, as we're using it here, is substituting other things in our life for God and putting them on His throne. I have a friend who, I don't know how else to say it, he likes to make fun of people. And uh, a few years back, Jane Gray, my wife, and I were riding in a car on our way to a party, and my friend was following us in another car. And I didn't know the way to our destination because we were in uh, Jane Gray's hometown. And the last thing that I wanted was something that I'd heard from my friend before. The last thing I wanted was to hear him mocking me about, how incompetent of a driver I was once we got to the party. And Jane Gray, though, she was trying, she was not uh, very successfully directing me to this party until uh, finally she took me to a wrong turn and a dead end. And I got angry. And I spoke harshly to her. Because, see, I know that God is my judge, I know that. But in that moment, functionally, being a good driver was elevated up to God's throne like it was going to tell me whether I'm approved and valued or not. Or from another angle, 
My friend was now going to be my judge who gave me that. And they had become gods or idols that I was worshiping. What is it that you look to to tell you that you are good and okay and loved and accepted and a treasured possession? It could be your body, having a good body. You know, hence an obsession with working out or problems with diet. It could be your work, hence being a workaholic. What, what is it that you spend most of your thought and your time on? Having good grades or a clean house, intelligence, or having a baby, being good at a sport or a hobby. What, what makes you feel better than other people? It could be good theology, good looks, a nice house, a nice car, I floss, I eat healthy. It could be your race, which leads to racism. It could be your class, which leads to classism. It could be your nation, hence an unhealthy kind of nationalism. This makes me feel better than other people, than those people. And if I'm better than them, then I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm acceptable. Come at it another way. Why do we commit sexual sin? It's because we desperately want to hear from someone, you're beautiful, well done. I've never seen anything like you. We desperately are reaching out for that through sex. Back to my driving episode. Whatever your idol is, if it is threatened by someone, if, if someone gets between you and your idol, you're going to get angry with them. If over and over you don't get it, you're going to be depressed. If you don't know if you're going to get it tomorrow, you're going to be stressed and anxious. Because you need it to tell you who you are and to give you that smile and that favor of that favor that you were meant to have from God. This is why the world is so messed up. Because you and I keep rebelling against the king, putting ourselves and putting other things on his throne. And it's leading to all manner of brokenness sprouting up in our lives. And the only way that true healing can come, the only way that we will ever find all of this brokenness mended and made right is if God comes and uproots the stump from our lives, the stump of this belief that God is not for you. And He does so by speaking words of grace to us. Which brings us to our final point. In this passage we see the belief that brings mutiny, the belief that brings idolatry, and finally the belief that is defeated by the gracious word. At this point, we're really in a predicament because the Bible says we are all created in covenant with God. And the covenant says, if you obey, you will live. You will receive the tree of life, paradise, something even better than paradise. But if you disobey, you will die. The day you eat of it, God said, you shall surely die. Because God is the true lawgiver and judge. 
no matter how we try to live as if we are. God is the true lawgiver and judge, and He's a just judge. And His justice requires that law-breaking, that sin be punished. You and I, as those who have broken His covenant law by worshiping other gods before Him, ourselves and everything else, we deserve to be punished with God's judgment. But the good news is that the Bible does not end there because God in this passage comes to lawbreakers like you and me hiding in the bushes, believing that God is against us. Because now we know that's what we objectively deserve before the bar of God. And He speaks a promise of grace. He says in verse 15 that the offspring of woman, the seed of woman, a child born of a woman, as we read from Galatians 4, a child born of a woman, He will come and crush Satan and his lies and the damage he has done. He will make everything right again. And how will this happen? Well, imagine a family sitting there outside on a blanket having a picnic. And the dad notices all of a sudden that there's this deadly snake slithering up to his baby son. And so he jumps up and he stomps on the snake, crushing its head, rescuing his boy. But in the process, he's bitten on the heel and dies. God says, that is how I'm going to make everything right again. This one who will be born of a woman, he will come and he will die as he defeats evil. Because a death is necessary, right? Sin must be punished, but God is whispering, I will make a way for that punishment to fall on another. And he even illustrates this for us in verse 21 by clothing them with animal skins. See, sin must be punished. A death must come, but they're not the ones that die in this passage. Instead, God sees to it that an animal is put to death in their place. Right? He, he pretty much institutes the sacrificial system right here. Right? It, it, like five verses later, Cain and Abel will continue this tradition of bringing sacrifices because God was pointing forward to the Lamb who would be slain for us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who bears our punishment so that we could be clothed with the garments of His righteousness that He earned. Jesus would come and be a second Adam in covenant with God. And He too would be tempted by Satan. But unlike us, he would not believe the lie. He, he was tempted to worship something else, anything else besides God. But what did he say in Matthew 4 to the devil? He replies, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. He obeys. But he doesn't receive the tree of life as the reward which he earned. 
Instead, he, he receives a cross where He takes the punishment that you and I deserve for our mutiny and our idolatry. And through faith now, this obedient, law-keeping righteousness of Christ can be counted to you and me so that we can look forward to that day that one day we will eat of the tree of life in paradise, restored and consummated. In the old story of the prince and the pauper, Prince Edward is out and about one day, and he sees one of his palace guards beating a young beggar about his age. And he's horrified, and he makes him stop, and he takes this boy, Tom Canty, into his palace chamber. And they're fascinated by each other. Because Tom has never seen anything except his life of poverty, and uh, Edward doesn't know what it's like to live outside the palace walls. And so Edward gets this idea. What Edward decides to do is he wants to trade clothes with Tom. He wants to feel what it's like to be a beggar. And so Edward puts on Tom's filthy rags. And what happens is when he puts on these dirty rags, the palace guard mistakes him for a pauper. And he grabs him and he throws him out into the streets outside of the palace walls. And from then on, Prince Edward gets treated like Tom got treated. Mocked, beaten, and ignored. But Tom put on the royal garments. And when he did that, he was mistaken to be a son of the king. And everybody looked at him as if he's Prince Edward. Even the king himself looked down at this beggar. And because he was wearing Edward's garments, he called him son. See, the seed of woman, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace Himself, He came for rebellious lawbreakers like you and me. He voluntarily stepped off of His throne at the right hand of the Father. And He said, I will take your filthy rags upon Myself. And I'll take the treatment that comes along with it. I will be beaten, mocked, and ignored by my Father in heaven so that you don't have to be. And then he takes off his perfect, spotless, royal garment of righteousness and he clothes us with it so that the King looks down at us beggars. And because we are wearing his righteousness, He looks down at us and calls us son. Y'all, when you see the royal God putting himself where you deserve to be, so that we could be where he deserves to be, you will know that God loves you. That he has accepted you, that, that he is for you, that he would move heaven and earth for you. And you won't feel the need anymore to try to usurp his throne and, and to be your own king Who would want to commit mutiny against a king like that? And you will know that the judge of all the earth approves of you 
and accepts you and treasures you as His valued possession, so you won't be desperately reaching out for that in your work or your body or your children or whatever. Because the belief that God is against you will be uprooted and you will begin to see not an instantaneous quick fix at the surface level, but real and heart level change over time as God in this long, messy process of the Christian life, as God gradually conforms us to the image of Christ. This Christ who took the flaming sword of God's justice for us so that we look forward with joy to the day that all the brokenness in this world will fully be made right as we will finally eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God, living under the smile of God forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty Maker and King, we do praise You with, for the love with which You have loved us. Lord, that You have found us rebels, traitors against Your kingdom. And you have not stricken us down, but instead you've brought us into your home and given us an honored seat at the king's table. What grace you have shown us. We pray, Father, that you would transform us by this grace, that we might more and more and more submit to you as our king and worship you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.